Okay, so how do you identify yourself? Do you identify yourself like, oh, I'm a friend of so-and-so? Or, oh, I do this. I, you know, I am a you know, housewife. I am a um, lawnmower. I am a, you know, by whatever profession. I am a dog owner. I am a Barnabas owner. Or, do you know, by the church. I'm a Calvary Chapel light. I'm a Presbyterian, you know, the denomination. Or by relationships. I'm Brian's wife. I'm Chuck's daughter. I'm Char's mom. I'm Braden's mother. I'm Kelsey's mom. I'm Kristen's mother. I, I believe, and I know, that when we begin to take these identities to ourselves and we identify ourselves by anything other than being a servant of God, and I'm not talking about outwardly, I'm talking about inwardly. Because our identity is something that we take our pride in or we take our security from. And that security is to come from one source. And that's being a servant of the Most High God. In my devotions this morning, I was in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And this story always breaks my heart. And it's the story of David and Bathsheba. And it always breaks my heart. I always find myself going, no, David, don't stay off the roof. Bathsheba, take your bells inside the house. I am always so broken hearted to see my hero, David, take that longing look. But we're told that he, it was the time when kings go out to battle. But David had stayed in Jerusalem and taken his kingly rights. Before this moment, David always identified himself as the servant of God. And that identity kept him safe from danger, kept him safe from sin. This is who I am. Remember Joseph? He came to the same temptation. Potiphar's wife is literally coming onto him every single day saying, lie with me, lie with me. And he says this, how could I sin against the most high God? He recognized that he wasn't Potiphar's servant. He was the servant, even in Potiphar's house, of the most high God. And it was this identity that safeguarded him and protected him and allowed him later to take the throne of Egypt. In our lives, we are to have one identity, and that's the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives are to be so on the altar of God. And and let me remind you again, which I've been doing, that from chapter 12 to the end of Romans, he is telling us the attributes and the look of those whose life is on the altar. So we saw it on the interpersonal relationship, those in the church. Then we saw it in relation to the government and the secular world. Then we saw it in relationship to our Christian liberties. Because the question is like, well, what can I do or can't do as a believer? And you go back to the altar of God. I'm a servant of the Lord. Now, as we move into chapter 15, we are looking at what are the two sources of power instruction, direction for the believer. What what is the discipline of those whose life is on the altar? I tried to come up with like five points and I came up with two because it really comes down to this. Our life is all about the word of God, the gospel, and about prayer. That's what we do. That's our activity the word of God and prayer. And we're going to see that not only was Paul again pointing these Roman believers who he said, you know, I am confident that you are full of all goodness, that you're not lacking any, any goodness. You're not lacking in any good work. I am confident that you're filled with knowledge, that you're intelligent, that you're, that you understand the word of God. 
And he also says, and I am sure that you have the ability because of being in the Lord to admonish, to warn, to instruct, to exhort one another, to minister to one another. I know that you're able to do that, but still I'm going to remind you of these things. And it's so important to go back to how vital the word of God and prayer are to the Christian life, to the life that's on the altar. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 22 through 33, Jesus is confronted by the Sanhedrin and there are Sadducees and there are Pharisees. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they're, they're trying to trick Jesus and they say, okay, you know, who should we give taxes to? Caesar or you know, not? And having failed in their attempt to trick Jesus, they send the Sadducees in. And the Sadducees come with this hypothetical question. And the question is, all right, Jesus, there's this woman and she married this man, but he died. Then her, his brother married her. Then he died. Then the other brother married him. He died. So altogether, there are seven brothers that have died. Now, I don't know why they're not doing forensics by this time. What's in the wine? You know, what's in the bread? But nevertheless, it's hypothetical. They all die. So in the resurrection, because in their mind, there can't be a resurrection because of this hypothetical made up situation should annul the reasonability of a resurrection. Now, the Sadducees were this um, political and religious party that did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They also did not accept as authoritative any books of the Old Testament except for uh, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Those were the only books that they thought had any validity or any bearing on their life. And so Jesus looks at these men and he says, you've made two mistakes. Two mistakes. The reason that you're off, the reason that you're veering this other way, the reason that you have no faith, the reason that you're not aware of a resurrection from the dead is because you do not know the scriptures, one. And two, you do not know the power of God. And then Jesus points out from the scriptures why they were wrong. But in our own lives, we can get mistaken and we can get off course if we do not know the scripture and the power of God. Churches that emphasize the word of God to the exclusion of the work and power of God through prayer are very dry and brittle and legalistic and judgmental. On the other hand, churches that emphasize prayer to the exclusion of the word of God, and I have seen it both ways, become very emotional and very uh, mistaken in their doctrinal interpretations, become very liberal in some of their ideas. We need the word of God and prayer. And why do we need prayer? Because God has chosen prayer to be the venue through which we receive the word of God, through which we receive the power. In Luke chapter 24, we read that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scripture. We need prayer so that we can understand, receive, and take the scriptures in. In verses 1 through 12, Paul reveals to us the power of the word of God. He tells us that it's from the word of God that we learn, we receive patience, we receive comfort, we have expectation. And what do we learn? Well, we learn the attitude that we're to have towards one another from the word of God. Again, we who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification for even Christ. He is pointing us back to the scriptures 
to Christ and the example of Christ for our learning so we know how to conduct our lives. He says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Scripture accomplishes this by giving us the person of Jesus Christ. This is why we need the scripture. Not only did Jesus reveal the person of God, John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that we receive the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 3, that Jesus is the express image of his person. But Jesus also spoke the word of God. John 12, 49, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me the command what I should say and what I should speak. Then Jesus also shows us the will of God. Again, in regard to how we are to treat each other. Because we see that Jesus bore with his disciples patiently. He bore with the Sadducees patiently. He dealt with the Pharisees patiently. I mean, if I had seen the Pharisees, I'd be like, guys, let's hide. Let's just get away. I'm just so not up to this. You know, there there are certain people, they're not a joyful life, but they come to this church And they think that I am the one they should take every complaint to. I don't know why. They see my face and go, oh, she's the one that we've got to complain to. And they come after me. Seriously, when I see them, I hide. I have have a lot of hiding places. I've been at this church all my life. Well, since I was 12, when they built it, I know all the best hiding places. And, you know, I want to hide it's hard for me to bear with those, with the complainers, with the people who just want to find fault. That's hard for me. But Jesus bore patiently. In fact, we're told in Hebrews uh, chapter 12 that he bore the contrariness of sinners against himself. You know, he's, he's dealt with my own contrariness. Sometimes when I pray, I'm not very nice. I mean, I like, have to be nice to him because, you know, <laughs> he's got the lightning bolts. But, you know, I'm like, Lord, I'm mad, you know, at this person and that person. And life seems so unfair. And I prayed and I don't see anything. And, you know, I know you don't act like that in your prayers. But I see, I know he already knows it in my heart. So I might as well just get it out there because he's already seen it. You know, instead of going, hi, how are you? Don't mind my heart. I'm just totally honest. This is what's going on. And yet he bears with me so patiently. So patiently. He's my example. Jesus did not seek to please himself. We read in verse 8 that he might fulfill the promise made to Abraham. So, Jesus came and did not please himself, but he was set on obedience to the scriptures. This is the priority of our Jesus, the scriptures, that he might fulfill every promise, every word said to Abraham and to David. But in verse 9, also that he might save the Gentiles. Jesus lived in accordance with the scriptures. How much more We need the scriptures. Jesus, who was the very word of God. Jesus did what was for our good, the good of the Gentiles. In John 17, 19, we read that he he did this. He said, "For, for their sake, in his prayer to the Father, I sanctify myself that they might be sanctified. Jesus purposely set an example for us. So that we might look at Jesus, the gospel, and know how to live. He is for our learning. He gave us the scriptures for our learning, for our comfort, and for our patience. How is it that the scripture is for our learning? Again, for instruction, for testimony. I remember one woman said to me who came to Joyful Life, I didn't learn so much from the things that your mom taught as from her stories. And she said, every time your mom told a story, I thought, oh, that's how she treats Chuck. 
that's how I'm supposed to speak to my husband. You know, so I guess they called their husband Captain Zoom Zoom too. (laughs) But it's also that through the scripture, we might learn patience. Through the scriptures, we learn to wait and say, look, Job went through that season, but God came through in the end. He went through a season, and as James said, we learn through the patience of Job that God is good, that he always comes through. We learn through the story of Joseph, though there are 13 years of hardship, God came through and put Joseph on the throne of Egypt. We learn through the life of David, though he was in exile some 10 years, God came through. And that's what we learn. We learn through the book of Ruth, though Naomi was a widow and lost her two sons and felt like an outcast and so undeserving that God came through. We learn this patience. God is going, he's working. Even when I can't see it, God is at work and he's working. But we receive comfort. How many times have you been so upset, but there's a scripture, either someone gives you, or you open your Bible to a scripture and immediately it's comfort. It's exactly what you needed to hear. It's that word for today that you need. It's exactly that word, that hope. Scripture is what God has spoken. It reveals to us the person of God. It's the documentation of what God has done for others. It's the revelation of his very person. And it is the example of his son, Jesus Christ, and the work of his son for us. Scripture is the divine word. It's God's word spoken through prophet, shepherd, and king. And especially as Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us through his son. Jesus is the absolute word of God. As we're told in John chapter 1, he is the fulfillment of God's word. He is scripture itself. It's interesting because when you look at the scripture in Hebrews 1, it actually says, God who at various times and in piecemeal ways, or a bit here and a bit there. Have you ever noticed that with prophecy in the Old Testament? It's just like you've got like a scripture here and a scripture there referring to Jesus Christ, but you don't have a whole chapter like he's going to ride a donkey. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. You know, it's not laid out scripture. It's like in pieces. But then when you come to Jesus, it's the full revelation. He is everything you need to know about God, about salvation, about the purposes of God, about life. He is the good news of God. He is scripture. Scripture speaks to us about how God has worked in the past, his testimony, the ways of God, the promises of God, and the plans for the future. And in this way, it gives us patience. It gives us comfort. It's for our learning. We see that God always comes through. God never fails. His ways are perfect. His promises are true. His plans are the best. From scripture, we learn the will of God, what God desires for our life. Again, to bear with one another, to be like Jesus. God, through scripture, reveals his way of salvation, to save the world through Jesus, his son. The world, not just Jews, but Gentiles, as we read in Romans 9 through 12. It's the scripture piecemeal, right? We've got a scripture from the Psalm, from Deuteronomy, from Isaiah, and each of them are hinting or giving us bits of the plan of God to save the Gentiles. You see, life on the altar practices the word of God. It learns from the word of God. It goes to the Bible for instruction and for doctrine and correction. It receives 
patience from it. It derives comfort from it. It's the word that forms our expectations. It gives us hope. God worked for them. He's going to do it for me. And it shows us and it gives us inklings of how God's going to work in this situation. Obviously, to learn from it, receive patience, derive comfort, and form our expectations, we need to be studying, reading, and meditating, listening, hearing, receiving, directing, being inspired, obeying, and heeding. You know, everyone has a different learning style. You could be a visual learner. You could be a kinesthetic where you have to touch it. You might be an auditory learner. But when you take every different learning style and you put it together, you are getting a fullness of being able to learn. Sometimes, um, I have a friend who, who taught herself the uh, chemistry table by song. And that's how she remembered it. So often, you know, we need to sing it and it goes into us. Uh, those are for those who, who learn emotionally or relationally. Then there are those who, who learn visually. You have to read it. But we also have to hear it. And there has to be road or repetition of these same truths to go down deep in us. And that's what we do with the word of God. But secondly, we need prayer. And, and Paul, knowing that we, we need prayer. He's going to pray these truths into the Roman believers. Because life on the altar practices prayer. We have Paul's prayer in verses 5 through 6, verse 13, and verse 33. Paul didn't just say it. He prayed it. Because prayer has this way of taking the truth deep into our heart. Remember, Paul said in Romans chapter 10, It's as we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. It's more than just reading that he is Lord. We have to receive him. How would he do that? We do it by confession, by prayer. Prayer is confession. Prayer is thanksgiving. Prayer is worship and praise. And prayer is also um, asking that we might receive. Prayer includes, uh, Paul includes, excuse me, Paul includes Prayers and benedictions or blessings of prayer in every single epistle that he writes, you will find a prayer for the believers because Paul understood the importance of prayer in the life that is surrendered to God. Years ago, I stopped asking my family, can I pray or can we pray? Because sometimes if you say, can we pray? Everyone's like, oh, look at Miss Spiritual right? You ever have that? Okay. It just happened in my family all the time. So I decided, I just started praying like, Oh Lord, (laughs) you'll see this. We need you right now. Come into this. And Brian and I have gotten to this habit. We probably learned it from my mom where all of a sudden we're like, Oh, she's praying. (laughs) The conversation with me stopped and it's now to the Lord. And Brian and I have this habit where when he starts telling me something that becomes overwhelming, I just like, Lord, you know, I can't take it anymore. I just give it to you. This is terrible. You know, Oh, you can do something about this, but you can do something about this. Or Brian won't be driving. He'll be telling me a terrible situation and he'll be like, and Lord, you got to take it from here because you know, I can't do this. Let me tell you, honestly, if you wanted the least suited couple for Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, you got them. We are absolutely dependent on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer. Our boat is filling with water constantly. We are always bailing. We're constantly like, Jesus, please wake up right now and work on this storm. There's this absolute dependency. And you know, prayer proves that absolute absolute dependency. It brings Jesus into every single equation. It recognizes the fact that I cannot obey the word of God just as it stands, as much as I want to, as much as I know it's good and I know it's right. I need the Holy Spirit working through me that I might obey. And Paul recognized this with with the Roman believers, having given them these this incredible doctrinal epistle 
He begins to pray for them. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded. You see, prayer opens up our understanding to realize that we are praying to the God of patience and comfort. Ever realize that? The God of patience. It's not that God goes, oh, you need patience. Let me, Gabriel, could you go over to the storehouse? See if we have any patience. Bring it back. Cheryl needs patience. Just a real quick story. Years ago, it was Christmas time, and I had my niece and I had Charge. I was about three years old, and he was hyperactive. And he could get my niece kind of wound up. And somehow I always got childcare all my life. They're like, give, she's hyper, give her the kids. And, you know, why my sister and my mom were shopping. And so I kept turning to them because I also had an agenda of things to buy. And I kept, you know, grabbing their little hands, looking into their little faces and saying, listen, I need cooperation. It's a big word. And this is what it means. It means that we are working together because when we all work together, 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 when we all work together, how happy we'll be for your work is my work and my work is your work and our work is God's work. Oh, when we all work together. And I kept pausing having these times. And, you know, I turned to them at one point because Char was getting a little wound up, grabbed their little hands, and I said, what do I need right now? And he looked up at me, and with absolute sincerity, he said, patience. And I was like, yes, and besides that, (laughs) we are praying to the God of all patience. Think about the patience of God. He's not willing that any should perish. But all should come to eternal life. He has endured the assault, the blasphemy of men since the creation in order that he could reserve for himself a people. In order that he could fill his house. He has been patient and patient as We learned um, in Brian's sermon week before last about the wrath of God. That wrath is God's strange work. That he does not afflict readily or easily. He has so much patience. The God of all patience. And patience is himself. He takes what is his. What is of his essence. And he imparts to us. So we're not just getting patience. We're getting God. Every time we pray for patience, we're getting a little more of God. Every time we pray for comfort, we're getting a little more of God. Isn't that, ex- isn't that better than just patience? We're getting God himself in us, imparted to us, the Holy Spirit. Grant you, and, and, and why do we need patience and comfort? Look at this, that you might be like-minded toward one another. We need patience and comfort so we'll just be nice to each other. So that with one mind and one mouth, we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity is so important to Jesus Christ. He prayed five times that those who believe in him might be one. Paul reminds us in Ephesians that we have one faith, one God, and one spirit. We're going to learn next week that we're to mark those that cause division in the body of Christ, and we're to avoid them. Paul tells us again in Ephesians that we are to endeavor to keep the unity. Endeavor is not a, like, a word that means no work. It means work at it. Do all you can. Again, next week, you know, um, or no, last week or one of those weeks. Some week we learned as much as lies in you. Chapter 12, right? Be at peace or 13 with all men. As much as you're able to, we need to, to pray that we might have unity. You know, when we feel those little, mm, 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 we've got to pray. We've got to pray it through. Scripture is for our patience and comfort and hope, as we read earlier. But we also need prayer. Because it's 
by prayer that these truths are radicalized into our life. It's where we receive an impartation from God. It's not just enough to read them. It's not just enough to hear them. It's by prayer that we receive them and the power to have them realized in our life. The I am that I am, the becoming one, the one who is everything we need, gives us of himself through prayer. Often when I'm reading the Bible, it's like too much for me. Ever have it where like, oh Lord, what you're asking, this is so much. You know what I do? I put my hands on it. I said, all right, Lord, this is what you want. Here's my heart. You're going to have to adapt it, break it, remove it, remold it, whatever you want to do. I confess how hard this is for me. I confess the rebellion in my heart against this truth. You know, when I read the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Oh, I hate to admit that. But I put my hand on it and I go, okay, it's true. I know. Help me. Change me. I want to give you my heart. It's, it's that release to God. And, and this happens often during my Bible study time. During my time, I'm admitting, confessing, asking, claiming, and thanking him. Yo, not only do I confess throughout my Bible study, but some of these things, I just thank him. Oh, his mercy endures forever. Thank you. You know, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Thank you. And then there are promises I claim now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think according to the power that works in us through Jesus Christ. Yes and amen. I claim that. It works in conjunction together. The prayer and the study of the word. After explaining God's amazing plan to save the Gentiles as well as the Jews through Jesus Christ, Paul again prayed in verse 13, now may the God of hope. So we know he's the God of patience. He's the God of all comfort. We're told that also in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the God of all comfort. There's no other comfort but in our God. He's the God of patience. It's his resource. You won't find it out there. It's not for sale at Macy's. You will only find it in God. But may the God of hope, expectation, the only hope, the true hope and sense of expectation is only in God. He's the only one that can save the world. He's the only one that can save the United States. And he's the only one that can save a soul. It is in God alone. But it is in God. Okay? It's not just in God alone, but it is in God. And I love this. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy. Fill you. Overflow you with joy. This is what expectation in God does for us. It fills us with joy. When my hope is on the United States government, the political system, voting, the electoral system, I start to get a little worried a little anxious. When, when my hope is in the young people, in the colleges, I get a little anxious. When my hope is in the economy, when my hope is in Brian's driving, you know, when my hope is in Brian, I'm looking at his ear going, that might be a skin cancer. And I'm thinking, okay, if Brian dies, I can get a job as a cook. You know, all those things that you've done it to. My hope is in God. And when my hope is in God, because he's the God of all hope, I'm filled. This is prayer. When I look to God as the God of all hope, I'm filled with joy and peace in believing, which means faith. You see, prayer increases our faith. I think prayer enhances the word of God. Again, it radicalizes us. So as it radicalizes 
our hearts going so deep, imparting God. It, it makes God's word live in us, take root, go that step deeper. But he says that you may abound. I love the word abound. Abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of you know I've got this stock named Barnabas, a son of encouragement. He's like the cutest little black golden doodle you have ever seen in your life. And this morning, when he saw me, he came bounding towards me. And it's like his front paws move together when you're bounding. You know, it's not like that's trotting. But bounding is taking as much ground as possible. And I was looking at him as he was running towards me. And I'm thinking, wow, this is how joy and hope are coming to me from God. See, Barnabas is from Jesus. But it's abounding towards me. Abounding. It's not like a little bit like mm, hope. You want a pinch of it? It's abounding. How much you want. Here it is. God's saying, I'll give you as much of myself as you want. I will fill you as full as you want of hope. It is abounding. But again, it's through prayer that we know this abounding of all we need. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul prays down and into their lives the power of the Holy Spirit to receive the wonder of what God has done. It is through prayer that what God has done materializes in our heart to produce hope or expectations of great things to come. Joy and peace and faith abounding. Not just expectation, but great expectation. Paul's own life showcased the importance of God's word. We see that in 14 through 29 of chapter 15 of Romans, that he relied on the grace of God revealed to him through the gospel. The gospel is the word of God, which tells us the work of God done for us through Jesus Christ. Through the gospel we realize the generosity. And this is what Paul said. It was through the grace of God that I realized the generosity of God in covering all my deficits and the abundance of everything I need. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, one of my favorite scriptures. And God is able to make all grace abound. I really do like that word. Toward you. That you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. It is the gospel. And Paul said, it's the gospel that revealed to me the grace of God. And Paul took the gospel as his mission and as his message, as his glory, his directive, his grace, and the blessing of his life. Paul's whole life centered on the gospel of Christ. It was his ministry, as he says in verse 16, to take it to the Gentiles, to make sure, again, his ministry, that the offering of the Gentiles was acceptable to God. The reason that Paul collected this offering from the Gentile churches is he wanted to give proof to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem that the Gentiles were saved. Because the whole world was anti-Semitic at that time. And when Paul collected this gift, because God changes hearts so much to make you love the Jews. When we were in Israel the last time, we were taken into the Knesset and we're meeting with all these leaders. And they were saying, why do the evangelical churches of America love us? We know that they do, and we need you so desperately, but why do you love us? And Brian said so eloquently, because all the promises of God have come to us through you. That's how we have knowledge of the promises of God. Because our Savior, the Messiah, is Jewish and has come to us. He is the son of Abraham and the son of David. And he has brought us into the covenant of God so that all these promises are now ours. 
through the Messiah, Yeshua. There, there comes this indebtedness that Paul talked about. So he collected this offering for the Gentiles to show their appreciation so that those Jews who were impoverished, who had lost their jobs because of becoming Christians, and a lot of them had been formerly Pharisees, so that they might see the Gentiles' gift that would provide for them food and shelter and raiment, things that they had lost, that it might provide for them and also show them the unity and the love of the church. Paul's authority in ministering was the message of Jesus Christ. This was his ministry This was his authority. He reminded the well-equipped and the established believers of what was theirs through Jesus Christ. Again, even though Paul was confident in these believers that they were full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to admonish one another, this is what Paul did. It was his ministry to remind believers, to deepen believers' appreciation and reveal to them everything that God had done From the Old Testament scriptures. We read that every synagogue that he went into. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Paul's whole life centered on the gospel of Christ. The scriptures. It was his ministry to take it to the Gentiles. Again to make sure that the offering of the Gentiles was acceptable. To those in Jerusalem. To make sure that the Gentile believers were living lives that showcased the grace of God. Paul's ministry was to go places with the gospel where it had not been preached before. He wanted to make sure that every person heard. He didn't capitalize on another person's ministry because it wasn't about making a name for Paul. It was about making the name of Jesus Christ known. It wasn't about having the largest following, the most Twitter followers, or the most followers on Facebook, or the biggest church. It was about glorifying Jesus Christ. The gospel was Paul's message in verse 18. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel. Verses 19, 20, to preach the gospel. This was his aim. This was his message was the gospel. But the gospel was Paul's glory. He refused to talk about the signs and wonders that God accomplished through him. And God did do signs and wonders through Paul. Uh, we're, We're told that people would wait and just see if Paul's shadow fell on them. And they would be healed. We know that in in Philippi, he cast that demon out of the young girl and she was delivered. We know that while Paul was singing in the prison with Silas, the prison doors were open and there was a great earthquake. We know that he established many churches all over um, Illyricum and in Galatia, the area of Galatia in Turkey. But he didn't want people to think anything more of him. He wanted them to think gospel and to think of Jesus Christ. And he said any signs and wonders that were done were only to validate or to lift up the gospel, not Paul. The gospel was Paul's directive. It directed him where he went and where he preached. It was at the helm of all his plans. He desired to go to Spain. The gospel was also responsible for Paul's generosity this grace, this attitude towards believers so that he took up a collection to take to Jerusalem to bring relief to the impoverished Jewish believers who were experiencing famine, persecution, and increased Roman and Jewish oppression. He felt that this was necessary because it was these Jerusalem Jews to whom the promises of God and the Messiah were first given. It was the Jews who were responsible for giving Jesus to the world and to verify again the conversion of the Gentiles to Jesus. The gospel brought the fullness of the blessing of Christ. This was the blessing of Paul's life. In verse 29, Paul said that he longed to come to Rome to bring the fullness of all the blessings of God. Because the fullness comes through the gospel. He said it's coming through what God has done in the word of God. And the word is the revelation of what God has done. 
Paul knew that the gospel was the entrance to all the blessings of God. This is the word of God. This is what he desired to bring with him to Rome. Not only the blessings that he elaborated in in Romans 8, but to tell them about what God was doing in the entire world through the gospel. Is Is there anything more wonderful than to hear how God's moving in Iraq or Iran or China or Afghanistan? I love it. Every time they legalize the word of God, it seems to grow. And to find out, as Paul said, I might be chained in Philippians, but the gospel is not chained. But Paul's life not only reflected dependency on the word of God, which is the gospel, but also reflected his dependency on prayer because he didn't just pray for others. He asked for prayer. He requested prayer. Paul asked that these believers would pray for him. In Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 27, Paul talked about how the Spirit makes intercession for us while we're praying, that he groans. And he says this of the Spirit, that he knows the mind of the Father, that he helps in our weaknesses, that he prays the things that we need, and he prays according to the will of God, and he prays passionately, groaning deeply. But Paul says, will you strive together in prayer to God for me? In verse 30 of chapter 15, will you strive together in prayer for me? Together in prayer. Because Paul knew that unified prayer is powerful prayer. In Ephesians, when he's talking about our armament that we have, he says, and praying with all prayer. When we pray with others, there is power. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, that if two or three agree as touching any one thing, it shall be done. If you pray my name as touching any one thing, it shall be done. Jesus also said, wherever two or three of you are gathered in my name, I am there. There is power in unified prayer. So Paul asked for prayer. He asked that he would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. And we know that that happened because the Roman guard came and delivered him from the unbelieving Jews. He didn't pray that he wouldn't be hurt or maimed or touched. He said that he'd be delivered. That's exactly what happened. He prayed that his service for the saints in Jerusalem would be accepted. It was, Acts 21, 17. He prayed prayed that he would be able to meet with the saints in Rome with joy by the will of God and be refreshed with them. This is exactly what we read happened in Acts chapter 28, 14 through through 17. We read how Paul, when he was in Rome, he only had one guard and he was allowed to receive people into his house and minister to them. And then church history tells us that he was released because of his good reputation on the boat um, when it crashed and he gave those prophecies. But then Paul prays again for these believers. He ends this chapter with this prayer. Now, the God of peace, and there we are again, the God of peace, be with you all. You know, there's nothing quite as precious as peace. Without peace, I can't sleep at night. Without peace, I'm in a constant state of agitation. I love how David says, Because of God, I will lay down and sleep in peace. And he says this when he is, when men are are hounding him to take away his life. But he said, because of God, I can sleep at night. You know, we never appreciate peace until the peace is gone. (laughs) You know, when you get anxiety, it's just like, oh, please, please, I want that peace. But that's God's very nature, peace. It's what Jesus spoke to the wind and the waves. He spoke peace. He he pervaded the atmosphere with his peace. And the whole atmosphere had to obey, had to yield to his word and the power of his word. And so Paul prays that the God of peace would be with them all. Amen, or so be it, or it's going to happen. 
The power of the life on the altar comes from learning from the scriptures because they were written for your edification. They were written for your comfort, for your learning. It comes from praying to the Father in Jesus' name because this is where we will receive the power and the ingesting of the word that we might live in accordance with the glory of the gospel and the grace of the gospel. This is where Paul received an abundance of glory and grace for the ministry that he had and the message that he gave. And this is where we will receive an abundance of glory and grace for the ministry, whatever the ministry is that God has given us we will receive it from the word of God and from prayer. These are two essentials, essentials, necessities of those whose lives are on the altar. Let's stand up. Lord, again, I want to present to you your daughters and I pray that you, the God of all peace, would fill them with all hope and expectations, with all joy and with all peace, with all faith, Lord Jesus, that they would believe, Lord Jesus, that they would rehearse, that they would remember, that they would go back to the things that you have shown us through this gospel, that they might be rooted in grace that they might lay themselves on the altar knowing that you are faithful, you are good, that they might have that patience to be still on that altar, that they might have that comfort to sleep on that altar, to lay down and rest, that they might have that expectation that as they are in you, you will do it all as you already have done what was most needed through the gospel. Lord, I pray that they might abound in hope Lord, that they might be so filled and overflowing that they might just run, run with endurance, run with strength, run with speed, run with glory, run with joy by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, impart yourself to these, your daughters. May they learn to take directly from you and from who you are, that they might live by the glory of your word and by your presence through prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.